You're listening to a sermon preached at University Presbyterian Church in Seattle, Washington. For more information, please visit our website, upc.org. A couple of weeks ago, you may have seen in the news, three students found $40,000 in their couch. Cash. Did you catch that? They bought this couch from the Salvation Army for 20 bucks. It wasn't exactly what they wanted. It was, it was smelly and it was tattered, but it was the right dimensions for their room. So they bought it, they took it home. Apparently one of them had their arm on the armrest, noticed it was a little bit lumpy. After further investigation, discovered an envelope inside with $700 in $20 bills. And they thought, whoa, and this made them curious. So they started to uh, rifle through the rest of the couch. $40,000 in cash. This is when the neighbors say all the screaming and dancing started. They could hear next door. And uh, then somebody found on one of the envelopes a name. Oh. You know, that they spoiled the fun immediately and presented them with this dilemma. What do you do now? Now, what I want to suggest to you tonight is I, I know that finding 40000 in a couch is an unusual circumstance. But I do not think that the dilemma is unusual. I think the dilemma is quite common. The question of, do you take it or do you give it? I think we're faced with that question innumerable times each and every day. Not necessarily just about money. For example, what about our time? Uh, would I, should I take this evening and work on my thesis or should I give it away and go to my roommate's concert? Should I, uh, what about space? Should I take the space behind the car in front of me or give room for that car that didn't take their opportunity to merge earlier? Or responsibility. Should I take more from a client who complicates after the estimate is done? Or should I give and absorb the cost overruns myself? Opportunity. Final seconds of a basketball game. Should I take the last shot myself or give the ball to a teammate in the breakaway? Reputation. Should I take everyone's praise or give credit to the folks who really did the work? Availability. Should I take a little bit more from a sibling who so generously cares for our aging parent or should I give up my vacation this time and give them a break? Tonight we have a case study, I call the case of Naaman, on greed. And it's a case in which the question of taking is surfaced. The, in fact, the word take is, is listed in our text ten times. You may not notice it because it's translated in different ways. Most frequent translation is the word accept. So you might look for the word accept, and I'll try to also point out some of the other places where the word take is used. But what, what the narrator of this passage is doing is surfacing for us the question, hmm, what do we take? What should we take? And why? So let's open up our Bibles to to Second Kings chapter five. And if you're grabbing the black book in the rack in front of you, you want to turn to page two hundred ninety three. We're in the Old Testament, Second uh, Kings chapter five, page two hundred ninety three. And I'm going to ask you just to relax there, and I, I will uh, I will read this text for us. It's rather long, and I want you to follow along, uh, just noticing the passage as I read. But when we are done, I'll say, this is the word of the Lord to give you an opportunity. If you believe it, to say, thanks be to God. Listen carefully. We're hearing God's holy word. Naaman, commander of the army of the king of Aram, that's Syria, was a great man. 
and in high favor with his masters, the king. Because by Naaman, the Lord had given victory to Aram. The man, though a mighty warrior, suffered from leprosy. This is probably not modern-day Hansen's disease. Uh, probably more like psoriasis, dry, flaky skin. Now the Arameans, uh, on one of their raids, had taken a young girl captive from the land of Israel, a slave, and she served Naaman's wife. The girl one day said to her mistress, If only my lord, Naaman, were with the prophet who is in Samaria, that's going to be Elisha, he would cure Naaman of his leprosy. So Naaman went in and told his lord the king just what the girl from the land of Israel had said. And the king of Aram said, Go then, and I will send along a letter to the king of Israel. So Naaman went taking with him ten talents of silver, which is, by the way, an enormous weight of silver, 6,000 shekels of gold and ten sets of garments. He brought the letter to the king of Israel, which read, When this letter reaches you, know that I have sent to you my servant Naaman, that you may cure him of his leprosy. (laughs) When the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes and said, Am I God? To give death or life that this man sends word to me to cure a man of his leprosy? Just look and see how he's trying to pick a quarrel with me. But when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, he sent a message to the king. Why have you torn your clothes? Let him come to me that he may learn that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman came with his horses, chariots, and halted at the entrance of Elisha's house. Elisha sent a messenger to him, saying, Go wash in the Jordan seven times, and your flesh shall be restored, and you shall be clean. But Naaman became angry and went away, saying, (laughs) I thought that for me, for me, He would surely come out and stand and call on the name of the Lord his God and would wave his hand over the spot and cure the leprosy. Are not Abana and Parfar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? He turned and went away in rage. But his servants approached and said to him, Father, if the prophet had commanded you to do something difficult... Would you not have done it? How much more when all he said to you was wash and be clean? So Naaman went down and immersed himself seven times in the Jordan River, according to the word of the man of God. His flesh was restored like the flesh of a young boy, and he was clean. Then he returned to the man of God, he and all his company, He came and stood before him and said, Now I know that there is no God in all the earth except in Israel. Please take a present from your servant. But Elisha said, As the Lord lives, whom I serve, I will take nothing. Naaman urged him to take, but Elisha refused. Then Naaman said, If not, please Let two mule loads of earth be given to your servant, for your servant will no longer offer burnt offering or sacrifice to any god except the Lord. He wants to take two wheelbarrows of dirt back to Syria to build an altar with. 
But may the Lord pardon your servant on one account. When my master, that's the king, goes into the house of Reman to worship there, leaning on my arm, and I bow down in the house of Reman, when I do bow down in the house of Reman, may the Lord pardon your servant on this one count. And Elisha said to him, go in peace. But when Naaman had gone from him a short distance, Gehazi, this is a new character now, Gehazi, the servant of Elisha, the man of God, thought to himself, my master has let that Aram man, Naaman, off too lightly by not accepting from him what he offered, by not taking from him what he offered. As the Lord lives, I will run after him and take something out of him. So Gehazi went after Naaman. And when Naaman saw someone running after him, he jumped down from the chariot to meet him and said, Is everything all right? Gehazi replied, Yes, but my master has sent me to say, Two members of a company of prophets have just come to me from the hill country of Ephraim in the south. Please give them a talent of silver and two changes of clothing. Naaman said, Please take two talents. He urged him and tied up the talents of silver in two bags with two changes of clothing and gave them to two of his servants who carried them in front of Gehazi. When Gehazi came to the citadel, he took the bags from them and stored them inside. He dismissed the men and they left. He went in and stood before his master. And Elisha said to him, Where have you been, Gehazi? He answered, Your servant has not gone anywhere at all. But Elisha said to him, Did I not go with you in spirit when someone left his chariot to meet you? Is this a time to take money and to take clothing olive orchards and vineyards, sheep and oxen and male and female slaves. Therefore, the leprosy of Naaman shall cling to you and to your descendants forever. So Gehazi left Elisha's presence, leprous as white as snow. This is the word of the Lord. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord lasts forever. A few years ago, According to the New Yorker magazine, two great American writers sat at a cocktail party together. They were on Shelter Island in New York at the home of a billionaire. And one of them was Kurt Vonnegut, whom you know is the author of Slaughterhouse-Five. The other was Joseph Heller. And Kurt turns to Joseph Heller and he said, Joe, how does it make you feel to know that our host only yesterday may have made more money than your novel Catch-22 has earned in its entire history. And Joseph said, I've got something he can never have. To which Mr. Vonnegut replied, Really? What on earth could that be, Joe? And Joseph Heller said, The knowledge that I've got enough. You know, you and I can have that same knowledge. And if you wonder how, I think this text points a direction. And I would like to answer that question in three ways this evening with you. First, I want to look at a definition for greed, the dynamics of greed, and then finally, how it is that our Savior Jesus Christ disrupts those dynamics. So let's begin with first things and the definition. 
What is greed? What is it? Well, I think through this narrator, God has suggested this definition. Greed is taking what I don't need. Greed is taking what I don't need. I wonder if you notice the irony of this story. If you step back from it, did you notice that the stuff that each man has in its two main characters uh, gets exchanged by the end? That there's a reversal. At the beginning of the story, we have uh, Naaman, and he's got silver and psoriasis. We also have Gehazi, and he's got smooth skin. By the end of the story, there's this reversal so that now we've got Gehazi who has silver and psoriasis and Naaman has smooth skin. This raises questions about the stuff that we want, the stuff that we think we need. The word that the New Testament most frequently uses for greed is a compound word for have more. And I think that tells a huge story right there. The word greed simply means have more. So greed in its essence then is is believing that the one thing I really need is always the thing I don't yet have. So it's this experience of being possessed by possessing or our possessions, always needing more. What's so fascinating to me about greed is that most of us don't think it's our problem. We did a survey, and you can still participate in it if you want, through Facebook of the congregation. And one of the most interesting findings is that when we ask ourselves, what do we find most commonly of the seven deadly sins in culture? You know what the answer was? Greed. 40% of us said that's the most common thing you see out in the culture. When we ask you, uh, on the other hand, what do we most commonly struggle with in our own lives? Do you know what was at the bottom of the list? Greed. Yeah, 40% in the culture, and we said, no, it was about 5% about five in ourselves. What does this mean? We can spot it really easily in other people, but we can hardly even notice it in ourselves. I can tell you, in 25 years of ministry, I can't remember a single time when someone came to me and said, George, I'm really struggling with greed. You know, we want to be struggling with greed. Now, what does, this, what does this tell us? I think it's that we get the more part wrong about have more. Here's what I think. We think that the more part of greed means have more than other people have. And we know there's always somebody else who's more than we do, so we don't really even qualify. The guy, Gehazi probably thinks that. He's now in the presence of one of the richest men he will ever meet. Probably the richest man he will ever meet. Uh, Naaman, this, this great general, leader of all the armies of, of Syria. And he's thinking, how could I possibly be greedy with this guy? This, if there's greed, then it's, you know, I'll tell you who's greedy here. It's this fellow over here. And, and I'm only asking for a tenth. You know, did you notice that? Uh, Naaman brings ten talents, like 75 pounds of talent of silver. And Gehazi goes, oh, humble me. I just want a little tithe of that. He won't even notice it. You know, how could that be greed? As long as the news will furnish you and me on a daily basis a diet of stories of rich people gone wild and corporate greed, we'll never think that we qualify. Because there are always people who have more than we do. But that's not what greed is. It's not having more than others. It's having more than I need. And that's important to catch. 
The implications of, of thinking of greed this way came home to me a few years ago. You remember, no one can forget, I hope, that in 2010 we had a horrible earthquake in Haiti. It's just a tragic thing. We haven't recovered from it. And uh, one of our children in a class asked me, I was visiting classrooms this Sunday, and uh, the child said, why would God make something so bad happen in the world? <laughs> and it's a really good question. It's a really hard question. I stammered through some kind of an answer. But I tell you, the answer that formed in my mind and has stuck there ever since is, I'm not sure God did that at all. And the question I want to throw back at ourselves is, why would we allow people, human beings, to have to live in substandard architecture in an earthquake fault? Yeah, God might allow the earthquake, but we're the ones, the 20% of the world's population that consume 80% of the world's resources. And you could say, why did God allow the flood in Bangladesh? But the question is really, why do we allow people to have to live in a floodplain? And it begins to occur to me that when I take something that I don't need, I might just be taking it from someone who needs it. And this is why it's so significant that at the end of this passage here, at the climax in verse 26, Elisha asks a very penetrating question of Gehazi. And I don't know if you caught this. He, he, he says, is this time to accept or to take money and to take clothing to take olive orchards and vineyards, and now you can see Gehazi going, wait, 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 wait. To take sheep and oxen, wait, 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 wait. To take male and female slaves, and, and Gehazi would finally break in and go, I didn't take any slaves, okay? I, I did the money and I took the clothing, but no slaves. Don't pin that on me. Why does Elisha ask that question? Because that sentence is almost an exact quote from Samuel. When back in the day, he tells the people Israel what a king would do when they request a king for Israel. He's saying, don't go there because if you go there and you call a king to rule over you, that king will disproportionately use the resources of the people. He will think that his needs are preeminent and he will take from you so much so that you will lack what you need for basic human flourishing. And now Elisha is saying to Gehazi, you are on a very slippery slope, my friend. Do you know where this leads? So I think we do struggle with greed. Greed is taking what I don't need. And Gehazi does that. He wants more. He wants to have more, to hold more. But the irony is, by the end of this story, he's going to have less than he ever has. And that's what greed will do. So that's the definition. Greed is taking what I don't need. Let's move on, number two, to the dynamics. How does greed work in us? And here's what I'd like to focus your attention on. Greed puts us under a demand. It's the demand that I call the demand of give or take. It's a demand that insists that you must either give or take, that you're not really free about that. You have to. See, when we look into the future and we are faced with our own insecurities, we don't feel we have the freedom not to take what we don't need because we don't know that we might not need it later. And we see this demand to either take or to give in these two characters. Let me just explain briefly what I'm talking about. It's a little confusing, I think. Gehazi 
Gehazi can't afford to give. He must take. And we see this in verse 20. Very rarely does a Hebrew narrator let us inside the psychology of one of his characters. And yet here in verse 20, he has done that. We hear the self-talk of Gehazi exposing his motive. And what he says is that my master has let that Aramean Naaman off too lightly by not taking. What he's saying in essence is, you know, we did an awful lot for Naaman. And when someone does an awful lot for you, you should be expected to have to give something in return. It's quid pro quo. It's this for that. You don't get anything for free in life, baby. And when someone gives something to you, you have to give something back. That's just the way the world works. And it was wrong of Naaman to, uh, to of Elisha to, get, to let Naaman off too lightly. See, he's living under this demand that requires him to take from somebody to whom he gave. Now, if Gehazi can't afford to give, I want to say the reverse is true for Naaman, at least at the beginning of the story, he can't afford to take. He must give. How else would you explain the manner in which Naaman arrives at the doorstep of of Elisha? He comes rolling up with his entourage. We read with horses and chariots. These are black SUVs that come screeching to a halt in front of Elisha's house with a big cloud of dust. And the security detail jumps out with fingers in their ears. This is a very impressive arrival. And he says, for me, surely Elisha would wave his hands. A big guy like me. This is going to be good. Watch this show. Naaman thinks that he is God's gift to the world. And he wants to leave an impression on these poor Israelites. This will be the day that they remember that the lofty Naaman came and gave us the gift of his presence. He blessed us with his gold and silver and all of his clothing. That's what the story Naaman's hoping will be. But you know what? Elisha says, "Uh uh-uh. That's not the story here. You're here because you have a need. And you're here to receive, not to give. But Naaman can't do it. He he wants to give because he is the self-made man. He lives with the mythology of his own greatness. And he can't abide that he would be in anybody else's debt. No, I'm the one. If, if a problem needs to be solved, then it's going to be solved on my credit card. Thank you very much. I'm the great Naaman. So Gehazi can't afford to uh, give and Naaman can't afford to take. This is the demands of give or take. You see, there's a constraint. You either owe someone or someone owes you. You live in what I would call a transactional economy. And when you live in a transactional economy, you always need more. And what you have is never enough for an uncertain future. We demand more of others. Let me give you two examples. First, how we demand more of others. How is it that a man who has been happily married for 25 years might one day just leave his wife? If you ask him what was wrong with your marriage, he might tell you, Well, it just got dull, frankly. It just got dull. And if you press him, well, what made your marriage dull? And if you really, to be honest, I I think you might hear him say something like, well, it's frankly that she's perfect. Really? 
yeah, she's just smart and beautiful and selfless and uh, she's great. But after 25 years of great, I, I just came to start to expect that. And I wanted more. And one day he comes across another woman and he goes after that other woman and he does something horrible that he told himself he would never do. And he finds himself crushed in tears, crying out. And he's going, oh my gosh, what have I done? Now all hell is broken loose in my life. And it was so great before. Why did, why didn't I not just realize how much I already had and go for more? And you see, this is Gehazi. Gehazi gets this point in his life where he goes, I wanted everything that the, that the foreigner had, that the Syrian had. And what did the Syrian have? Well, he had silver and he had psoriasis and I got exactly what I wanted, but I'm such a fool because I wish I could go back. I had enough. It was great. Life with Elisha and everything was great. Why, why couldn't I see it? And so we make demands of others, like a husband might make demands of his wife to be more than she really is. But also we make demands of ourselves. And here's a second example of this. I think it's greed that keeps us from appreciating who we really are, who God has made us to be and what he's given us in our lives. I think it's greed that drives our perfectionism. And I hear I speak as an offender, chief offender. A little over two years ago on the pitching mound of Safeco Field stood a young man who had done what no one in history had ever done from that mound. Uh, this, this was Philip Humber. Philip Humber had just pitched the perfect uh, ball game. Only 20 pitchers in history have ever, have ever done it or had done it. And he stood there and Safeco was just erupting in applause. And later that afternoon, the president of the United States was going to call him and congratulate him. And that night he'd be on the late show with uh, David Letterman. But seven months later, you know where he'd be? He'd be cut from the roster of the Chicago White Sox. After that critical moment in his life, he tanked. His performance dropped off a cliff. And if you want to know why, just catch the subtitle to a Sports Illustrated article that came out not long after that. It writes that for one magical April afternoon, Philip Humber was flawless. But that random smile from the pitching gods came with a heavy burden. The pressure to live up to a standard no one can meet. You catch that? I mean, this is Naaman. And Naaman's had some, he's had a good run. He won some battles. He got promoted through the ranks. He won wars. And pretty soon he was commander in chief, the chief general of the Syrian army. And he was becoming wealthy and powerful and really a great man, as the text tells us. And you know what? This is a a huge burden for anyone to be a great woman or a great man and have that kind of a history and those press releases. Nobody can live up to perfection. And what incredible demands then we make of ourselves. Because we need to have more. How can you top that? And yet, that's the pressure. Greed keeps us from giving or taking. It demands that we do one or the other. So, how would Jesus Christ, our Savior, disrupt this cycle of greed? It seems so strong. In a word, though, the good news is grace Grace will disrupt it. Grace is a gift that cannot, and more importantly, need not be repaid. 
This is the thing that disrupts a transactional economy. It's transformational grace. If you think about the story, this is the picture that the narrator is trying to paint for us. He's drawn for us two poles. On the one hand, there is generosity in Elisha. and On the other hand, there is greed in Gehazi. And Naaman is the one who moves. Naaman is the one who demonstrates the disruption of grace. Naaman moves from greed to generosity when he, he is in, he's struck, confronted by, encountered by the grace of God. This is what the narrator wants you to watch for. This is from the very first sentence of this story. He's telling you that Naaman's story is a story of grace. You might go back and look at that. Here, uh, he starts this whole story by saying that Naaman was a great man in high favor with his master. Why? Because by Naaman, the Lord had given. The Lord had given. This is a simple Hebrew phrase. It's actually the Lord gave. He gave. He gave Naaman everything that Naaman has that makes him a great man. See, now you, the reader, know what Naaman doesn't even know. That Naaman's whole life, that all of his success has been the story of God's grace. Naaman might think to himself, I worked hard. I had good strategy. I'm a smart guy. I've been courageous and fierce and tireless. And all those things may well be true, but that's not what makes him great. The text tells us that he was in high favor. It's actually a verb that means lifted up. The Lord lifted him up. The Lord elevated him. Interestingly, it's also, a, in this context, it's a career word. He was advanced in his career through the ranks as a general, a soldier, advanced. And the whole time, though he didn't know it, it was the Lord who was lifting him up. See? Lifting him up into the presence of the king. So that now he sits in a place, by virtue of God's grace, of honor and security and privilege and influence. He has been lifted up into the presence of the king. And if you want to know a a great image of what God has done for us in Jesus Christ, that's what he's done for you and for me. He's taken you and he has elevated you. He has lifted you up. He has advanced you up into the presence of the great king. And that's who you are. Now you have security and privilege and honor and influence. That's the good news of grace. You know, and Elisha gets it. He's a man of God, repeated, and he gets it. And so he's wise enough to know, I am not going to take one red cent from this man because I know this story is the story of grace. And grace is a gift you don't deserve and you don't repay. And it's transformational. <laughs> and, and Naaman gets it. He goes, now I know that there's a God in Israel. He doesn't mean that there's no other God, lowercase g, anywhere else. He makes reference to other gods later on. But what he's saying is, there's no other God like this God. All the other gods make demands of people. They demand that you serve me, all the other gods. But this God makes no demands. This God gives. This God says, I am a God here to serve you. There's no other God like this. And it's this God that has the capacity to heal and to transform. And Naaman gets it. He's going to worship the living God. So grace is the thing that allows us to take and to give. And and, and Elisha has to take. 
That's where grace begins. He, he, he has to take from God to meet his needs. You take from God to meet your needs, not from stuff. And then he wants to give. See, Elisha gives Naaman an opportunity to take God's grace, God's life, God's healing. And Gehazi gives Naaman an opportunity to give. He doesn't know he's being ripped off or fleeced, but he is so eager to give. When Gehazi asks for one talent of silver, now Naaman goes, hey, I'll meet your one and raise you one. Let's double that. I got two talents for you. And he's really happy to give because that's what grace does in our lives. The cross of Jesus Christ confronts us. It confronts our myths of self-sufficiency. It confronts our fears of insecurity so that we can take and that we want to give. God says to us in the cross of Jesus, you have needs that only I can meet and I will meet them. God says to us through the cross of Jesus Christ, I will always meet you, your needs. And so there's nothing that you have that you can't afford to give away because I've got more. I'm not withholding my own son from you. Don't worry. See, this is what moves Zacchaeus. You know the story? Jesus moves Zacchaeus out of the tree and into the home of hospitality with Jesus. It's grace. And Zacchaeus, at the end of the day, was a tax collector, had been swindling. He would say, you know what? I'm going to give half my wealth to the poor. I'm going to give fourfold to anybody I have defrauded. I just want to do it. It's a grace bomb in his life. It's disruption, and it's a beautiful thing. I met a member this week uh, in her home, a member who's been uh, struggling financially. She wanted to tell me a little bit about how she's been making ends meet. There's not much money right now. And, uh, but she told me this with a smile. She held up a finger. She said, I want you to know, though, I have everything I need. She had no idea what I was preaching on this week. She said, I have everything I need. And she said, you know why? And I said, no, but tell me. And she said, it's because I have Jesus. And to me, Jesus is everything. And then I looked at her face and I saw her smile. And I thought, I'll take all of that you got. And there was one word that came to my mind. And it was the word abundance. Abundance. This woman who has so little is living with greater abundance than I can imagine. Oh, I know exactly what you guys would do with $40,000 if you found it in your sofa tonight. I know what you would do. You would give it away. You would. Because if you thought about it long enough, you'd say, I, I, I have received so much from my Savior that $40,000 is nothing. And I expect to receive so much from my Savior this week and for all of eternity that $40,000 is nothing. And one way or another, that's what these students decided to do as well. Apparently, they took that name and they found an address for her and they got in their car with those envelopes and with the whole world pulling against them, they drove forward to find this woman across town to the next town and into a very distressed neighborhood and they found a house that was tired. Porch was falling off and it needed painting and they opened the door and there was a 91-year-old woman who had lost her husband years ago. When he had died, he had left her some money and she'd taken that money and everything that she could save and she had stuffed it in that couch and that was where she slept. Until recently, when she needed back surgery and rehabilitation, while she was out of the house, her daughter, trying to help, not knowing about 
the couch, gave it away to Salvation Army, and at the doctor's instruction bought her a, um, a decent mattress to sleep on. But when she saw these students returning that money, she burst into tears. And they saw such joy in her face. They knew that she received this as a gift from heaven, as a miracle. And they said, we're really glad we took the money back. And when one reporter asked them, why did you do it? They said this, at the end of the day, it wasn't ours. And I want to say to you and me, those of us who've been called to be stewards of our stuff, would that we might all remember that. So I think what they learned that day was what Winston Churchill said, that we make a living by what we get, but we make a life by what we give. Let's pray together. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we pray that you would draw our white knuckles off of our stuff that you would withdraw our imaginations from the aerial bombardment that the culture subjects us to every day, trying to convince us we need more. May we surrender to your grace and your grace alone. Disabuse us of the mythology of our own self-sufficiency. Call us to fall on your grace, your all-sufficiency, and renew us. And we pray that so turned around by your grace, we might find ourselves to live with open hands and great generosity, individually and corporately as a church. We pray it not for our credit or for our glory, but, Lord, we're eager for you, Jesus, to receive glory because of who you are and what you have done for this creation. In Jesus' name, amen. For more UPC audio or to find out about service times, visit us at upc.org. All online audio is available on CD and cassette. To order copies of sermons and classes, please visit upc.org audio, email audio at upc.org, or call 206-524-7301, extension 117.